Welcome to uh, this version of our podcast, What's the Score? Let me remind you that if you enjoy today's podcast, or any of our podcasts for that matter, to please press the like button on whatever format you're listening to the podcast on. Also consider supporting us by uh, joining us on patreon.com and show your support for the program that way. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the podcast. Once again, thanks for listening and enjoy today's terrific interview as well as some amazing film music. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Now, now, what started out as a hobby in 2011, he's been increasingly busy with acting and directing and producing. He's been one of the most prolific producers of independent contact, actually, in Louisiana. Some of his contact is a some of his content, I should say, has garnered over a million views. So, without delay, please join me in welcoming John Armio to the program. Hi, John. Good morning, sir. Morning. I appreciate you joining us. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. Um, as most of my uh, most of my listeners will know, I always like to find out a little bit more about the individual that we're going to be talking to, at least on a personal level. So I was wondering if you could take a couple of minutes and just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, absolutely. Um, I am originally from Southern California. Town I will hold that against you. That's all right. A, a town called Fullerton, California, which you may have oh. heard of. Yep. Uh, Cal State Fullerton, I guess, was where most people would have heard of it. Um, right next to Disneyland, uh, one town over from Anaheim. But uh, I was there in California for about 27 years and then moved to Florida for a year and then been in Louisiana ever since. So uh, since 2002, I've been here in Louisiana with no intention of going back to California. Happy to visit. I still have a lot of family and friends there. But as far as living, uh, I'm not going back. Cost yeah. of living is insane. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it, it's an, you know, it, it, it is a little bit off track, I guess, but it is one of the most beautiful, most spectacular places I've ever been. Yes. And, uh, and you know, living there, uh, people have asked me about, you know, living there and I tell, tell them it's the greatest thing in the world because you can walk out, of, especially in Southern California, you can walk out of your door every morning and say, what do I want to do today? And you can do it. You can go surfing in the morning, go skiing in the evening. And uh, right. you want to go see any show, you can go see it. There, there's You'll never see enough. I mean, I was there for almost 30 years and never scratched the surface on what there is to do there. And yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing place. 
Yeah, I remember in June we were uh, house sitting for some good friends of ours in uh, Redondo Beach. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I remember one morning getting up, and I don't know, it was kind of like in the mid '60s, kind of mm-hmm. damp and cool, the June gloom as they call it. And I yeah. was I was going to drive out to Palm Springs to play golf, and I did. <laughs> and it was like 110 degrees when uh-huh. I got there. Right. That big temperature <laughs> differential after a two-hour drive. Yep. I mean, yep. it's insane. Especially in Redondo Beach, you have what they call the uh, the ocean um, the ocean breeze there. Um, yeah. The coastal breeze, sorry. So most of the mornings there in Southern California are kind of overcast. Well, people don't realize that in the ocean there. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, any direction you want to go, um, you're going to com- come into a completely different environment. Mountains, desert, you know, the beaches, uh, and then eventually just hit pure desert <laughs> for miles. Yeah, I mean, you 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 watch the local news, it's the mm-hmm. most unique weather forecast you'll ever witness. Yeah. Because they give a like a coastal forecast, mm-hmm. city, valley, desert, and mountain, and they're all different forecasts. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool place. Uh, like I said, I, I'm happy to visit. I was just, there, visit, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was just there last, last summer. Well, what, I, I'm curious, and what what uh, what caused the uh, uh, the move to Louisiana then? Well, let's see. I, I got divorced in 2001, remarried, and uh, my wife and I tried Florida for about a year and didn't really care for it. And we were trying to establish our own roots, you know, and, and build a life together. Sure. So uh, my wife, is her family is from Louisiana. My wife was actually born in Norway, um, and spent the first eight years of her life in Norway, and because uh, her father was stationed on an oil platform, being from this area, of course, and uh, so we ended up coming to Mandeville, Louisiana, with no intention of staying. And within two or three days of being here, really, really uh, fell in love with the place. Within two or three days of being here, really, really fell in love with the place, and uh, been here ever since. Oh, that's great! That's great. Yep. Um, I'm curious. Does she speak Norwegian? No. Yeah. <laughs> that's well i lived overseas for a while too and it's actually i mean i i learned like a few words in mandarin and mm-hmm. cantonese and stuff like that but i you know, I couldn't speak it so i mean i well, understand I, you know i now that you mentioned it you know uh the stories i hear her mother tell is that yeah the first couple of years she she spoke a lot of it but you know the further you get away from it and uh they they did have schools there for americans because right. there's so many uh you know workers out there they had american schools um but yeah to this day she doesn't speak any of it yeah, yeah. I um I loved your your choice of a uh, of scores of films that you were wanting to play music from. I mm-hmm. thought it was very diverse. That's what I say very diverse and you know what oh, I no, no, and I love that. And I love that. Some some of which I'm familiar with and some of which I'm not. Um let's start off with the first one. Uh, one of the ones you wanted to uh, share with our audience today was from the film called Batman Returns. We were going to play the end titles and it's written by a, a very well-known and uh, mm-hmm. admired composer, Danny Elfman. Right. Tell me a little bit about why you uh, chose that particular one amongst your favorites. Well, um, anybody who I imagine listening to this is a fan of, you know, uh, movie scores. Yeah. And, and they know Danny Elfman. He's been around. He's been on the scene for, what, 30, 35 years at this point as, as a composer. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, as a composer, and he was with the band Oingo Boingo before that. I don't know if you know that. Um but extremely, extremely, extremely unique composer. I want to say his first score that he did for a movie was with Tim Burton because they collaborate a lot, which I'm yeah. sure you know. But I want to say Pee Wee's Big Adventure was his first score. Um, I think you're right. Yeah. I was going to say Ed- Edward Scissorhands, but that, but I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say it's Pee Wee's Big Adventure and then Beetlejuice. 
And oh, then geez. the TV show The Simpsons, if you're watching Simpsons, that's oh, who yeah. he is. Yeah. And then the first Batman movie. And then uh, Batman Returns, I think, actually has a better score than Batman does. Um, Even though he did both of them. Yeah. I, th- yeah, I don't okay. know if he did the third one. I don't think so. But um, because Tim Burton wasn't on that, that was a Joel Schumacher film. But it is uh, interesting. It is interesting in and how sometimes uh, uh, directors and composers form a partnership. I mean, the, obviously, the most famous one is Spielberg and Williams, but right. And that's another, you know, pretty important one as well. Burton and, uh, and Elfman. Yeah, I think once you get that collaboration, once you click like that, uh, there's no stopping you. <laughs> you know, you can look yeah. at the well, and. and yeah, and especially when you look back, you know, I don't know, back 10, 15 years or more, but before you could basically reproduce the entire score in a computer to let the director right. know what it was going to sound like, mm-hmm. a lot of times you only had, you know, the piano or or or, right. or maybe had a small group of musicians to try mm-hmm. to give the director a feel of what it's going to sound like. Right. So that, you know, that trust, especially back then, was really important between the mm-hmm. director and the composer because... You know, the composer would say, well, you know, trust me, it's going to sound really great and it's going to sound like this and sound like that, but without it's, really being able to produce it. It's funny you mention that because I, I watch a lot of documentaries on film and uh, that's almost the exact same conversation that John Williams had with George Lucas for Star Wars. And huh. uh, trust me, you know, and yeah. uh, the the crew and cast who had never seen the movie, they all thought it was a joke when they were making it, that a joke when they were filming it, but when they sat down to watch the premiere for the first time and John Williams score came on and blew the socks off the place, you know? Um, it's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Music yeah. actually can, sometimes it can actually, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say save a film, mm-hmm. but it certainly elevates it. Don't you think? Oh yeah. Well, I have an interesting point on that statement. I'll come back to in a second, but okay. going, back, going back to star Wars for a second. Um, you know, there's always been throughout the history of film. There's always been really, really good soundtracks, but I want to say star Wars, Probably, you know, in so many categories, changed the world. But I want to say that John's Williams score probably changed the world of movies forever just because that score was so powerful, which leads me to the point I was going to make a second ago. So you've seen the Back to the Future films. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they're all great movies. Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and uh, I want to say Alan Silvestri is the composer. Correct. Yeah. But on that first movie... It's it's a lot lo- more low budget than people actually realize. I think there's only like two, maybe three special effects in the whole movie. And Robert Zemeckis, who directed it, you know, he they didn't have a lot of money for the part. And they actually had to shoot the movie twice, which further destroyed their budget. Huh. Um, but he said to Alan Silvestri, listen, we don't have a lot of money for this. So I need the score to be a blockbuster score to elevate the feel of the movie. So now that I've told you that, if you go watch that movie again, you actually pay attention. You'll see how low budget that movie actually is. Huh. But the score takes it to this whole other level. It's a good example. Yeah, oh, yeah. Example. And if you well, watch the movie, there's two special effects. One where the lightning hits the uh, the clock tower at the end of the movie. And right. one where the DeLorean goes through time at the beginning. That's pretty much it. Huh. I mean, some of our stupid movies have more special effects than that. <laughs> <laughs> we just need a better composer, I guess. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's let's quit talking and let the music do the talking for us. We're going to listen to a, a cue from the film Batman Returns. It's the end titles, and it's written by composer Danny Elfman.
I noticed when I was uh, looking at your uh, your bio on IMDb, it said something about the fact that you uh, you own a, a collectible toys business. Yeah, I did that for about twenty five years. Oh, you're not currently in in that anymore. Or? No, I, I wrapped it up uh, uh, five or six years ago. How did how did you get into that? That's kind of kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a weird dude, Frank. <laughs> I'm a weird dude. No, no, I, I think we have a lot in common in that yeah. regard. But but go ahead, tell me. I've, had, I've had an interesting life. So uh, being from Southern California, I mean, we can go on for hours. I don't know how much time you got. <laughs> but, uh, growing up in the uh, in the 80s, I was born in 1973, and I grew up in the 80s in Southern California. And a friend of mine in high school, um named Chris, his, his father owned a collectibles business. They sold movie posters and collectible beer cans from years past and, you know, toys and all sorts. And then to me, I was, you know, 13, 14 years old and then the comic books and toys and all that. Sure. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that, that you could be a grown man and make a living doing this. And he introduced me to the world of comic conventions in like 1986, 1987. Uh-huh. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And then, uh, he, we got along really, really well. And, uh, he used to hire me with my one of my best friends, Chris, and he'd pay me fifty bucks a weekend, and I'd go work the comic conventions with him, and you know, sell stuff. And I've always had a real love of movies and television, and that's real. That really started to, to fuel this, also, because I got to meet a lot of movie stars, and and talk to them, and 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 meet directors, and it, it was, you know, see them in person, have conversations. They'd buy stuff from our booth, and. Uh, as the years went on, I continued to work for him. And then when I, I graduated high school, I said, you know, I think I could do this because I'm a guy that likes to do things. So I started my own little side business in addition to my regular job. And for years, you know, I, I used to joke and say, I buy junk and sell collectibles. <laughs> Is how I, how I would summarize it. So uh, I did that for years. And then uh, the internet really took off in 1995. So in 1995, I went on to eBay and uh, I opened my own store eventually and uh, did that for years and wrapped it up in about uh, 2016. Going back to the music, it was, uh, I, I, I loved your second choice. I, uh, I, I actually, I have to, my, gosh, I have to admit something. I've only seen clips of this movie. I've never seen the whole movie and I, and I, I know I need to. All right. We'll tell you what the interview is. The interview is over. I need <laughs> you to sign off, go over to your television, watch this and come back and we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. All right. Cut. Um, I, saw, I will, I, I will watch it. I, 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 but, but I'm very familiar with the opening theme, which I love that mm-hmm. you chose. Yeah. I just think it's so cool. And oh, and yeah. from what I know about the movie, man, I mean, it just fits it perfectly. So the film we're talking about is Pulp Fiction. Uh, I, I'm a, maybe, you know, I'm not re- it wasn't really sure where I found it. Are, it's a, I guess the group that plays it is, oh gosh, I'm going to butcher this. Minotaurus? Does that For, ring a bell with uh, you at all? I want to say it's Dick Dale. Would, um, would that be the, the, the person who wrote it, you mean, or the person who performed it? Uh, both. Okay. Because I, I, it wasn't obvious on uh, on what I was able to find on the internet, so I, yeah. I, I'll take your I'll take your uh, description. It's uh, Dick Dale and the Deltones, a surf drag band out of California, and that it's makes an older, sense. It's an older group. I want to say, God, go back probably the sixties yeah. and seventies. No, that makes sense. But anyway, I mean, this is this is just this is just great, and it's a really great uh, mirror of a uh, music and film. I guess. not mirror, uh, marriage of music yeah. and film. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites. Well, um, again, going back to my own love of cinema and, and, and all, 
I want to say uh, you're familiar with Quentin Tarantino. I hope. Oh, well, yeah. Obviously. You've never yeah. seen Pulp Fiction. Well, I've, seen, but... I've, I've seen some of his stuff, yeah. I mean... <laughs> okay. So the first movie he ever did was Reservoir Dogs, right? Right. Okay. So, I, again, this is before the internet. I want to go back to the early 90s, and, and somebody gave me a copy of this tape and said, you got to watch this thing. It's the greatest thing ever. Some low-budget thing filmed in Los Angeles, and I lived in Los Angeles, or just outside Los Angeles. And I said, okay, so I watched it, and I said, this is absolutely fantastic. But it was very, very under the radar. You know, not a lot of people had heard of it. Not a lot of people have seen it. But that thing made its rounds on the, on the film festival circuit, and uh, thanks to Harvey Keitel, who financed it. Um, I don't know if you knew that, and really, really got. I didn't. Quentin, yeah, he got Quentin Tarantino on on the radar there uh, with his star power, and uh, that led to Pulp Fiction. And uh, you really got it. You really got to watch it. That's your assignment for now. You got to watch this movie. It's one of the <laughs> greatest movies ever made. I mean, if I pass it on the channels when I'm channel surfing to come across it, I can still sit down and watch it. I've probably seen the thing five hundred times. And, and is, what people call a remote drop, I guess, right? It is yeah. damn near a perfect. I'd say it is a perfect movie. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before in the podcast or not, and I'm, I'm not going to divert too long on this, but you mentioned Harvey Keitel. Mm-hmm. In my background, I, uh, I, my wife and I owned a bed and breakfast in Vermont for a number of years in the early really? 2000s. Uh-huh. And Harvey's wife, her parents lived in the same town where we had the bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. So he would come up occasionally and uh, you know spend a weekend or a That's week cool. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he, he started coming to our place for dinner. Because mm-hmm. we, we had a restaurant with a bed and breakfast as well. What a nice guy. Very yeah. unassuming, mm-hmm. you know, very shy, like of what you hear, but uh, he, he was tremendous. I uh, I enjoyed our time with him. Our daughter used to play with his kid. And, and, really? Uh, <laughs> That's cool. And, you know, it was, but it was great fun. But anyway, he, he's a nice man. And so I'm actually, I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear that that was something he had a hand in. The funny Paul. story uh, about that is, uh, I guess, Quentin Tarantino found out where he lived and would throw a script over his fence every day because he wanted <laughs> to play this rule. And, and he wouldn't stop bothering him. And one day, I guess, Harvey was out walking his dog, and, and Quentin Tarantino approached him and tried to give him the script. And he said, please read the script. He said, I will read the script if you promise to stop throwing the shit in my yard. <laughs> and he read it, called him, and they made a, a, a date for uh, for lunch and talked about it. And uh, Harvey Keitel came in there and, and said, I, I, I'm going to be in it and help him finance it. And that's why I noticed to this day, Harvey Keitel always makes a cameo in his movies, at the least, if he's not a major character. Wow. But, That's uh, interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. No, I did not know that story. So one well, cool so- thing about uh, Quentin Tarantino movies is that if, if I, I love them all, but his his choice of music carries those movies, and Pulp Fiction is no exception. I mean, yeah. every single song in that in that film, whether it's instrumental or uh, or you know pop culture, music is his absolutely fantastic choice. Yeah, I, I think he he understands the value of it and mm-hmm. how much it how much it enhances a film. Well, let's um let's have a listen f- for ourselves. This again is the uh, the opening theme from the film Pulp Fiction. And remind me again, the, what we think the performer and the composer is. Oh, I want to say uh, Dick Dale. Okay, I'm and I'm going to take your word for it. And believe me, I have an audience that if we're wrong, oh, they'll they let will. me know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's uh, sit back and enjoy and have a good great listen to this great piece of music.
one other thing I read on your IMDb page, I was surprised by this. I don't know if this is still current or not. Is it true that you actually own a DeLorean? I don't anymore. I guess I should update that. I sold it off a while back. Ah, rats. Okay. Yeah, well, then yeah. we don't have much to talk about. Well, I mean, <laughs> or, or was it, or did it have a, tri- a time travel uh, option on it? A flux, compa- a flux capacitor? You know, <laughs> yeah, when I owned right, that yeah. thing, that was always the number one question. Number oh, one I'm question. sure. Anytime I drove that thing, stuck it around town. Where's the flux capacitor? Number one question. Uh, but I, this is funny, you know, going back into my childhood watching films, Back to the Future. Said one day I'm going to have one of those cars. <laughs> one day I'm going to have one. Wow! And then the and reality I, kicks in is that they're not very good cars. <laughs> they're <more laughs> good. And, oh, I, uh, I I can only imagine it must have been. It would have been very expensive and very hard to maintain. I would I would guess. Well, uh, you know, back before the internet, of course, uh, when when I would talk about this idea of, of wanting one of those, people always say, "Oh, you never find parts for it. You never find parts for it." Um, so that was always a subconscious turnoff, but with the advent of the internet, um, there's a company in Humble, Texas, the DeLorean Motor Company, strangely, that huh. went in the nineties, found the old factory in Ireland and bought all this stock, everything and shipped it back here, including the name. And to this day, they are set up in Humble, Texas and they own all rights to it. They have all the parts. So you, all you got to do is go onto their website, pull up the schematics of anything you need and they'll ship it to you. And I'm only six hours from uh, Humble, Texas, so I'd usually have my stuff the next day. And uh, it's not a problem at all. And to this day, they still make DeLoreans. You can buy an electric one. You can buy them with all their flaws fixed. They they have a repair shop. So I just gave them a really good plug. <laughs> huh. I, I actually, I, I thought they were long gone, but it, it still, nope, it still exists. exists. Yep. And they're a new company huh. name and uh, very, very faulty cars. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in in hindsight, I'm not a mechanic, and that was part of the turnoff for me eventually. But in hindsight, they're not really complicated cars. They're just not well-designed cars. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I mean, what, I guess the appeal was the futuristic design of, of the body and that sort of thing. Was that the- Yeah. Uh, who was it? Um, John DeLorean worked for uh, – he was very high up at GM. Yeah, I remember and then that. he left. He got upset with them and left to go create his own thing, and he ran out of money. So he got involved in some sort of, it was a more of a misunderstanding than anything revolving, involving cocaine. And I'm sure you remember this, you're older than I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that whole mix up, but it completely tarnished his name, destroyed him. And uh, he kind of got, um, kind of got a, a raw deal in that, I think. I think he was guilty of some stuff, more out of desperation to, to save his company than any sort of drug deal. He definitely yeah. did wrong, but uh, his daughter named Catherine DeLorean, who's very, very active these days in the, uh, DeLorean community. I don't know how she keeps up with it because, uh, but after I bought mine, I got an email from her. Hey, John, my name is Catherine DeLorean. I heard you're joining our community and just want to reach out and say, hi, you need anything? Holler. It's like, okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, and that, you know, that's good business practice. No, yeah. no question about that. Oh, that's interesting. Fascinating. All right. Listen, the, uh, the next, uh, next score you chose is, is one of my favorites. And I and I I think I told you when we were getting ready for this. It still gives me goosebumps sometimes when I hear it. Uh, we're talking about the film Forrest Gump, and we're going to play the end titles from that film, written by Alan Silvestri. And uh, kind of tell me a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites. Well, I guess coincidentally, um, Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction both came out the same year. <laughs> Did they? Okay, ninety-four. I, I want to say, yeah. But uh, again, uh, that was a good year for for films. And again, I would say it 
damn near perfect movie, if not perfect movie. Um, again, uh, Robert Zemeckis, you know, from Back to the Future, did that. But just just a perfect movie overall, and and the music. There's a lot of '60s songs in there, and, and a lot of time uh, era appropriate music for the movie. But everything in that film is perfect, including the instrumentals from uh, from Ellen Silvestri. Just really, really perfect emotional uh, marriage, as you said earlier. Just a great marriage for the for the music versus the visuals and the story. It's interesting, and it almost it sounds a little bit to me like Back to the Future, where. Mm-hmm. What I mean yeah. by that is, <laughs> I, that gotcha. the, I think the expectations were very low for the mm-hmm. for the success of the films. Yes, and yet they ended up being huge hits. Well, the book of Forrest Gump has little to do with the movie. Like the book is awful. It's really huh. really over the top, where he goes into space and he gets stuck on a deserted island. And and <laughs> how how you take that and and change it enough where you get the movie that they got out of it uh, is is a leap. And there was actually supposed to be a Forrest Gump two where he ends up in the back of the car with OJ and Al Cowling's going down the 405 freeway. And, uh, are you serious? Oh, I'm dead serious. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, well, let's, let's just Tom King said, let's, let's just call it a day. And I think it was called, I think the movie's gonna be called Gump and Company. (laughs) I'm dead. I'm dead serious. So, and, uh, it's, you know, we moved into modern events and, uh, but, you know, they got a lot out of that movie. They got uh, the CGI, you know, coming off of Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. And oh, yeah. That, that was CGI. pretty innovative at the time. Yeah, over the top. They got the uh, Bubba Gump Shrimp Company restaurant chain out of that. And, uh, you know, Robert Zemeckis did that movie with Alan Silvestri. And talk about the marriage analogy used earlier. They also worked on Back to the Future together. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is a really tremendous. It's almost it's for the end titles, but it, you could almost say it's kind of like an overture for the score mm-hmm. for the entire film. So this again is from the film Forrest Gump. It's the end titles, and it's written by composer Alan Silvestri.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's patreon, that's P-A-T- R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. One thing, full disclosure, you and I are, are kind of friends. We've, in fact, I've actually worked for you a little bit on, uh, on one of your projects. And oh, yeah. We've so, I'm, I'm, so, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of familiar with you and your story. Mm-hmm. I hope you don't mind me asking this question because I, I think you would – I'd be interested to hear your answer because I think it'll, it'll be instructive to everybody who's listening. Um, you, uh, you defeated cancer a number of years ago. Yes, sir. And I'm, and I'm kind of curious – how did that change you? If, if, if I'm assuming it did. So oh, if yeah. it did, how, how did it change you having that and surviving it? So next year will actually be my 10 year, uh, anniversary of, of uh, being diagnosed and, and coming out of it. Um, but you hear, you hear a lot of cancer for survivors say what I'm about to say. Right. And it is 100% true. And, uh, it, it is a rebirth. It is 100% a rebirth. Because up until that point, I'd never really been sick. I get a cold maybe every 10 years, get the flu every, maybe every 10 years. I've never broken a bone. I just don't get sick. Yeah. I, I had COVID and I was down for a couple of days, but, you know, I, I just don't get sick. So that really, really came out of nowhere when I turned 40. And uh, it was it was humbling to say the least. And uh, and then I, I was, quote, you know, in remission. And then six months later, it really, really ugly head again where I actually had to do chemo. And I was down on my ass for 15 months, you know, oh, and boy. when you're down. And you know me well enough to know that I'm a pretty active guy. I'd like oh, to do yeah. things. Yeah. That must have driven you nuts. Uh, literally and figuratively, yeah. <laughs> it, it was bad. It was bad. And, uh, you know, when you're down, you have a lot of time to think and, and to come up with philosophies. And uh, But it is a rebirth. I mean... Uh, to this day, I still work as a, as a mentor for patients, and I, I volunteer with a couple of different organizations that call on me from time to time. So I have no problem talking about it. You know, I, I use it as an educational um, vehicle for others. But uh, it, it is one hundred percent a rebirth, and for me, it was really, really a 
big look at my own mortality, you know, because it scared the crap out of me. Obviously, scared the crap out of me. It it, it, sure. it it broke me completely. Broke me. We're point. I just threw my hands up. Said that that's it. Ready to go. You know, if I didn't have a family, I'm pretty sure I would have died. Wow. Um, yeah, it was bad. So, in fact, what we're even talking about now is all the direct result from that because I was doing films and all that before, but it was really, really after cancer. I said, all right, I'm. I, I'm always one to do what I want to do. I'm never. I don't let anything stop me from doing the things I want to do. Yeah. But going into the filmmaking that we're we're doing now, that you're part of, was also a direct result of. Listen, man. I don't know how much time I got. I've been given a second chance. There's no guarantee of a third chance. I'm going to not fart around and go do the things I want to do right now. Yeah. Um, so you know that's why you are on are on sets together. And I like to uh, I like to summarize it with the philosophy of. Uh, in order for me to live, I had to accept my death because I'd never really faced my own mortality before. Wow. Yeah. That, that's, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I'm not saying that in jest either. No, I mean, no, no. I, no. I'm impressed. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, wow. <laughs> I yeah, mean, so I, does I it change you? Quote. One, Did you 100%. Come up with that? Did no, no, no. I mean, that? no, that was me laying in my bed for, for months on end, <laughs> coming yeah. to terms because, um, you know, if, if, if somebody puts a gun in your face and, and they're going to kill you, you have about three seconds to come to terms with it, <laughs> right? You don't well, have a yeah, whole lot yeah. of time to think about it. But if you have a disease which is slowly killing you, you have a lot of time to think about things. So accepting your death doesn't become a, a, a three-second thing. It was a six to nine month, maybe even longer, of being tortured by this. Like, I'm going to die and I don't feel sick. I don't feel bad. I don't want to die. But it's happening. You know, so you wow. have a lot of time to be angry and to negotiate and all the, you know, the seven steps of, of, of grief. And uh, right. there's a lot of mourning. And, and I had to mourn the the death of, of old me, which was, I guess, naive, um, you know, and, and just innocent. I, 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 the old John died and a new John was reborn. I mean, the core person still exists. But my philosophies uh, on life and, and a lot of things have just changed. You know, I've, I've always been a calm, chill dude and don't get mad very often. But I mean, I really, 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 really don't sweat the small stuff anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I, I yeah, did I it bet. before and I really don't now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it also it also creates a bond. You know, if, if you talk to a World War II vet and a Vietnam vet, even though they're years apart, they share a bond that you and I can never relate to. You know, my mother-in-law had breast cancer, and we, even when I talk to people who have had cancer, I have a bond with them that I don't even have with my wife or with my kids because they've never experienced that. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a strange thing. It's you're, you're part of a club that you don't necessarily want to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there is a bond that comes with it, which I, I find I find fascinating. So it was yeah. a it was a fascinating experience. You know, I I, I do think that one day it's going to come back and kill me. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to make some movies with you and we're going to talk about movie scores and, uh, you know, <laughs> have a well, good time. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say now nah, you're, you're too tough of a, too tough of a guy to have it come back to you. Too stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, another film that you chose to highlight. We're going to play the prologue from this, this is from a uh, little shop of horrors. Uh, if I, if I documented this correctly, it looks like the composer is Bill Mitchell, Tell me a little bit about uh, what was your thinking behind uh, having that on the program today. Well, uh, people may say that's an unusual choice, Little Shop of Horrors, a musical, right? Huh. 
is an unusual choice for this because we're talking about scores. Um, I'm actually a big fan of musicals when they're done right. <laughs> you yeah. know? Musicals I find extremely boring. I don't really care for dance numbers. I know that was a little bit cinematically before my time, the big, you know, dance productions. Right. Well, I can appreciate them. They're, de- they're just not for me. <clears throat> but um, a really, really well done musical. I love the producers. I thought is fantastic. Little Shop of Horrors is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Because those, the songs within that movie really, really, really serve the story. Really, really serve the story. And they're so creatively done. So much so that even though there's a lot of, um, I think Little Shop of Horrors may be rated R. I haven't looked, but it, it's, it's not really. I can't a, remember. It, it's, it's, uh, it may be rated R. Um, but the, uh, the guys that did those songs, um, Howard uh, Ashman and uh, Menke, I believe his last name is, those two guys did so well with the creativity of those songs that they went on to do for Disney, The Little Mermaid music, uh, music for that movie, The Little Mermaid, The Lion, not The Lion King, uh, Aladdin, and Beauty and the Beast. Oh, okay. Which served the dead, the Disney Renaissance in the late eighties, early nineties. Cause Disney in the eighties was really, really dying with their movies sucked. And, uh, they called the Renaissance starting with the little mermaid moving into the nineties and really, really putting Disney back on the map. And a lot of that goes back to the music from those three movies. I just mentioned little mermaid, beauty and the beast, which almost won an Oscar. Yeah, Aladdin. Yeah. And if you ever watch those three movies and you pay attention to those, the music in those three films and compare them to a little shop of horrors. And then one of those, Guys in that partnership died right after, um, right after Aladdin, but before The Lion King, and the quality of the music in those movies just tanks right after that. And that's something. And you're right; the the the, the songs in those movies are just mm-hmm. they're, they're fantastic. I mean, I love them. I don't... Yeah, those movies, those uh, those soundtracks went on to be like number one on the charts for years because they were so so good that everybody wanted to hear them again and again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. Again, this is the uh, prologue from the film Little Shop of Horrors.
you've become a, a, a filmmaker originally started out as you mentioned in your bio as a hobby. Mm-hmm. How did it, how did it come from, how did it move from a hobby to being something that I know darn well, you spend a lot of time. I don't know how much free time you have, but whatever free time you have, you usually mm-hmm. seem to be spending it on this quote hobby, unquote. How did it become such a, uh, an important part of your life from starting out as a hobby to now where it's at today? Well, um, again, going back to, to my, my, my beginnings, um, when I was four years old, um, my dad was a huge Star Trek fan in the sixties and on the reruns, you know, through the seventies. Right. So my dad in 1977 heard about this new sci-fi movie called Star Wars. So he took the whole family on opening day to go see Star Wars at the Man's Chinese Theater in, in Hollywood. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was four years old at the time. I didn't realize how cool that was of my dad to do that until now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so uh, I remember seeing Star Wars and, you know, completely blown away, changed my life. And, you know, I got into the toys and I've always drawn. So I used to draw a lot. And uh, But living in California and knowing the entertainment world, what it is, you know, because living there, you're exposed to it no matter what, you know. Like yeah, living in Louisiana, it. yeah, you know somebody who works in oil. It's just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just the way it is. But I never, ever, 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 ever would have attempted to get involved in the entertainment industry living there, ever. So moving to Louisiana in 2011, a friend of mine had a, had a cousin that had been working on a, as a background actor in films here. And I was self-employed and, uh, he said, Hey, uh, my, my cousins, uh, told me they're going to start filming this GI Joe movie here in uh, Louisiana. And I'm a lifelong GI Joe fan. Um, eighties GI Joe, not sixties, but, uh, <laughs> I even have a tattoo on my right arm of GI Joe. Character. A, okay. All right. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there. Mm-hmm. What's the heck's the difference between a sixties GI Joe, which is what I grew up with <laughs> right. and an eighties GI Joe. Oh, it's a, it's a completely different world. Um, the GI yeah, Joes, really? oh yeah, from the '60s are the twelve-inch dolls and very, very generic. And and uh, the '80s is a complete storyline. With there's like GI Joes, just the team, and there's a million different characters. And at this point, it's got forty years of history behind it. You know, where there's an enemy, Cobra is the enemy, and they have a Russian version of GI Joe called the October Guard. It is this huge mythos now. So that's what I grew up with: the comic books, the cartoons, and. So when this movie rolled in and my friend said he's going to go try to get in background, I was like, he said, do you want to come with me? And I said, yeah, sure. What the hell? I'll go with you. Didn't expect anything to come of it. I said, we'll go to lunch in New Orleans or whatever. And at the time, um, I used to go to the gym a lot. You know, like I drop off my daughter at school and I go to the gym. So I was in decent shape. And uh, I've got my buzzed head and my nice posture. You you know me. And it kind of got a, a mean look to me. So uh, he went and met, <laughs> and met with the uh, casting director, and then they got done with their meeting, and it came out, and I was sitting on the couch, and she said, uh, hey, are you signed up with my company, Bathurst and Casting? I said, no. Why? She says, because you have a really good look. I can get you on a lot of movies. And I just, I, you know, paid no attention, really. I said, sure. Signed yeah, up. okay, whatever, yeah. <laughs> signed up. So I'm driving home from New Orleans to Mandeville, okay? What, 45-hour minute drive? In that hour drive, I got five phone calls from them. Holy smokes. Do you want to sign? We need you as a cop on this, cop on that, soldier on this. And I said, wait, wait. And I said, the first one, I said, what is this? What's, what's this first movie? What's it called? Because I've never done this before. She says it's called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. 
And I said, <laughs> I said, I am not interested in doing any college bullshit, you know? And she said, oh, no, no, this is a $190 million budget Tim Burton movie. Holy smokes. Well, that's what I said, but with more profanity. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, sign me up. And she said, we need you for like a week or two. And I said, okay, so I've never done this. But then, uh, yeah, that day I booked five things as like a SWAT dude and, and a cop and, you know, 21 Jump Street and all these various things, usually in a cop role. And uh, a lot of people, you know me in person, so a lot of people look at me to this day and think that I'm a real cop or previous military. All the time, I go into Home Depot and offer, offer discounts and all sorts of crap. <laughs> so uh, anytime I got into movie sets, you know, I'm, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. They would walk up and hand me guns <laughs> and say, here's what we're doing. And I'd just say, okay. So I talked to the other guys who were real cops, a real soldier. And there's a lot of downtime on movies. And I would, right. I would become educated on, on the subject. And uh, so I very, very quickly went from background to what they call special ability, right? And got that bump. So very, very quickly, I found my niche of I'm going to become, you know, I'll, I'll go with this because if this is what gets me hired, even though it's not my personality, my personality is rather silly. Um, I'm going to go with it. And uh, I used to call myself set famous. I'm set famous because I used to walk on sets and they'd say, hey, movie cops here. Hey, it's movie cop. Hey, there's movie cop. <laughs> so you notice my little my little joke now is America's movie cop, right? That's where, right. That, came, that's where that came from. Is uh, you know, I, I did a movie with Arnold. Schwar I've done three movies, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I've got to talk to him several, several times. And one conversation I had with him uh, on a movie called Escape Plan in 2012, he said, "You have to find your biggest liability and turn it into your biggest strength." Okay, huh. and uh, so I said, "Okay, well, I've been typecast as a cop. I, instead of you know self-deprecating about it, I'm just going to embrace it. I am America's movie cop. That's just what I am, and yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I embraced it." And, uh, and run with it. And uh, again, that is not my personality, but even to this day, you know, we work on, on flops, which you've worked on with us, uh, for this past year is, uh, I've taken what I, what I have, the look and, and the, the, the people that I know who help us with this, you notice John Mangus and all these guys, they all look like cops because they're the friends that I made over the years working <laughs> as a movie cop. Right. Um, so you start to see the theme now. You know, all the stuff that I learned about playing a cop and all that, we brought that to the table for flops. But I've also taken my own personality, and that's where the silliness comes from. You take what you have and you mash it together and you, you create something. Well, it, it is interesting how um, how important, quote, the look, unquote, yes. is yes. for a variety of things. I mean, just mm -hmm. like, you know, with maybe not so much now as I've aged a little bit, but, you know, I used to be like the detective or the lawyer or the business executive or something like that. And that was, you know, that was kind of the stuff that people said that I looked like. And so right. it's, it, um, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 the, that's the way of the biz. There's no question. about Yeah. It. It, it's definitely based on your look. And then, uh, I mean, we could cite example, example over and over when there was, there was one example, actually a movie I did called the whole truth with, uh, Keanu Reeves. Um, I've always been told like that I look authoritative, um, that I look like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah. on that movie, I got called in and uh, I've always been a good employee and a team player and do my job. So they've always called me back. My phone, all, to this day, my phone rings. And uh, they brought me in for that movie. It was a, it was a uh, courtroom drama. They wanted me to play the bailiff. They called me up, said, hey, John, we need you to come in here and movie cop for us for two weeks. You in? I said, sure, I'm in. And then to play the bailiff. 
But then I had to go meet with the director, and I walked in there, and she says, whoa, 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 stop. She said, I want you for the bailiff, but you're intense. <laughs> How would you like to be the assistant prosecutor? It's a much better role. You know, blah, blah, blah. Can you do that? I said, of course I can do that. Come on. <laughs> Who do you think you're talking to? So I got hired for that job for two weeks in a courtroom with Keanu Reeves. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but uh, I'm, oh, I'm, damn. Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the, uh, the three-member prosecution against the two-member uh, defense, and he's a defense lawyer and where the prosecution is. It was a great role, and uh, you know, I, I ran out of there sweating. It's like, shit, what did I just get myself into? As I'm sure you said to yourself, what have I gotten myself into, right? Yeah, yeah. And I had a neighbor who was a lawyer, and I have a friend who's a lawyer, and I called them. And I was like, Can I talk to you for five or ten minutes and you know, got some tips? But uh, it is 100% based on your look. And, uh, you know, so I was aware of you before I ever met you, um, you know, because we, we huh. run in the same circles and I had seen your picture. Right. And your look, I can definitely see, you know, the doctor, lawyer. Uh, I always thought you almost had an Adam West look to you, to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I met you uh, at, a, at a film networking event in Mandeville, right. if you recall. I do. So I make a lot of notes when I meet people because I say, oh, this guy's got a good look. And as you said, it always starts with, look, this guy's got a good look. What can I do with this guy? And I make a mental note to circle back or, or to keep a role in mind for this person. And it may take a year, may take three years. In your case, I think it probably took about three years. It's like, all right, I know as I'm writing things, I, I have certain people in mind for certain parts. But coming from that point of view from casting the movie, it's like, okay, I want to use Frank, but I don't want to just throw him into some gratuitous crap. It needs to make sense. It's got to so fit. Yeah. It has to fit. So in your case, when we knew we needed a mayor, to me, it was a no-brainer. We got a mayor. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Frank said he wanted to do something with this. So uh, it, that for you, you know, that, that look was a perfect fit for this. And, yeah, well, uh, I, I, I appreciate mean, that. It was great fun. It was great oh, yeah. fun. I'm looking forward to seeing the finished product. In fact, we'll, we'll circle back and talk about that here in a little bit. Okay. Let's, um, let's get back to the music. I, I noticed that you um, – you're, you know, as you mentioned earlier, big fan of Star Trek, and there's no oh, question yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the cues that you chose was the main title from Star Trek II, which I happen to consider perhaps maybe the best of the Star Trek movies, at least uh, of the agreed. original cast. Yep, yep, yep. Um, written by James Horner. Tell tell me a little bit about uh, what was your thinking behind choosing that uh, to share in the program today. Uh, well, everything you just said, um, it is regarded as probably the best of the the movies. I, I would I would even challenge that by saying Part Six is if not equal, pretty damn close because they both huh. have the same director. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Nicholas Meyer. They both have the same uh, same director. But uh, the the score so 100% serves that story, serves the suspense, serves the action. Uh, it's a damn near perfect score. All right. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. Again, this is from the film Star Trek II. It's the main title, and it's written by composer James Horner. Thank you. 
a note to my listeners, I think we may have inadvertently given James Horner credit for writing this music, but uh, in doing some research, because after listening to it, I could kind of tell it wasn't Horner's original composition. It was apparently written by composer Alexander Courage. Again, my apologies, but I wanted to correct that. Well, share with our uh, share with our audience. What are some of the uh, the projects that you've been producing or directing? That because uh, I, I know I know you're a, you're very much an independent filmmaker, and you've got some some things going on at the moment. What were uh, what are some of the things that maybe you might be uh, known for in terms of the content that you've put out on the uh, out there? I helped Mike when I first got together with Michael England on, on his project, which he was already working on, called Consequences, which is on Amazon. Right. We just wrapped up Cedar Creek. Now, now, Mike, uh, it, we're not partners; that we're financial partners. We are completely independent um, companies because uh, I just won't have partnership with anybody besides my wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but we are loyal to each other one hundred percent, which you've seen. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, but you know he he's on his path and I'm on my path, but we are supportive one hundred percent of each other, so he is a big big horror fan. He is more interested in doing features and taking the years required to do what needs to be done so Cedar Creek, I want to say is going on into its second year now, where I'm just happy to go in and have fun and have a good time and you know all the time that I worked in film, I never got to do comedy. The one time I was hired for a comedic role was for a TV show called Preacher, and it was cut. <laughs> I just don't have that look to do comedy, even though that is what I want to do. So I figured if I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to have to do it myself. You know, so you that's go. where flops came from. So the original flops, if you've seen it, I wrote it in like, I don't know, five minutes and we took five hours to film it. And it was truly a parody of cops. And now about this time is when the, uh, the riots were happening and Black Lives Matter thing was blowing up and they actually canceled the TV show flops. <laughs> I mean, cops, <laughs> because it was too controversial. So we had, I was planning more of these things, something we could do when we had some time, you know, and just for fun. So the first flops is truly a parody. And if you watch it, it is obvious that it's a, a, just a cop's parody. It's, it's silly, but not too silly. Um, but I wanted to do more of them. And I said, well, shit, you know, this is what I wanted to do. And now the world's all controversial and nobody wants to touch it. And I mean, people did not want to come. I mean, I have a still photographer that he's like, no, I don't want to touch that, man. I, a couple actors like, I don't want to touch that right now, man. And then I said, okay, well, I'm, I got a good, good idea here, and I'm just going to have to change my approach to it. So the approach to flops became, okay, instead of being a cop's parody, which it still will be, it is going to be a complete, over-the-top, silly, stupid, ridiculous parody so that nobody complain, can, can complain or find any fault with it. So we did flops to meet your maker, which I'm sure you've seen. Right. Um, and they're we, usually popular. Oh God, right? yes. Oh God, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're they're great. And uh, I mean, I was amazed at the at the number of views that you've gotten. And you, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I I said, gosh, you know, you must be, you know, you monetizing this, you making making some money off it. And he said, no, no, no. these are fan films. Mm-hmm. And, and and we we did it that way. I, well, you tell me. I mean, it, it, well. Um, yeah, they are definitely, uh, I, I pay for it all out of pocket. Again, my motivation is to have a good time to, to right. learn and to bring people with me. So, uh, you're not you making know, big bucks off of these things, even though they get lots of views millions, you know, on TikTok alone. I mean, it's in the millions on TikTok alone. 
That's um, amazing. It is. And it caught me off guard, you know. And, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, but I mean, you should be proud of that, though. It's oh, obvious yeah. that you came up with an idea that's, you know, resonated with people and they have, have a lot of fun with it. And you should be oh, proud yeah. of that. Well, we tr- we tried. I've diff- you know you have to try different things. Failure doesn't scare me because that's how you learn. I don't mind failing. I don't mind yeah. screwing up, and yeah. uh, you know it helps Mike out because these are projects in which he can continue to practice on and try new things and do that. So when he makes something like Cedar Creek, the experience helps him to be you know to get what he needs to do, and it's it's a learning experience for all of us. And uh, you know, right now we're working on Flops Three: The Dark Knight, which is full blown. You're involved in a full blown fan film. I can't make money on that, you know. Um, because even though we don't use specific terms, you know, I can't, yeah. I can't use those characters and make money on it. They will shoot me. <laughs> so well, let's, uh, um, let's uh, but, but before we run out of time, let's, uh, there was one other uh, Star Trek queue that you had oh, chosen yeah, yeah. Star Trek six. I'm sorry. Uh, it's the, uh, the overture is what we're going to play. This is written by a composer. I'm not familiar with him. Cliff uh, Eidelman, I guess is how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about, because you had said you thought it was a, a, a close competitor to Star Trek II, oh, yeah. I guess in terms of the film, and I guess also in terms of the music. Have you seen Star Trek VI? I think I have, but I've slept since then. I don't really remember <laughs> a lot about it. I'm sorry. So Star Trek VI is the last movie with the original cast. Okay. And it came out in, I want to say, 91, which is right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of communism. And uh, you grew up, I'm sure, with the original Star Trek. So you remember that those stories always mirrored real-world events oh, yeah. in a sci-fi setting, which is what made it popular, the, the, uh, the analogy there. So this movie mirrors the fall of capitalism and old, old warriors, where do they fit into the world? And this music captures what is a murder mystery story. It is a political thriller in the Star Trek world. Ah, isn't that neat? That's neat. Well, so, let's have a listen for ourselves. And this is a, the overture from Star Trek VI, again, written by composer Cliff Eidelman.
John, for those people, uh, our listeners that are interested in kind of being in touch with you and seeing what you got going on and that sort of thing, I'm assuming you've got a presence on social media that people can follow? Oh, yeah, very much. Uh, on Facebook, John Armijo, just type in America's Movie Cop, it'll pull up. Uh, we also have Our Fun Productions, which is my production company. You can find out about flops, uh, whatever projects we're working on. Um, on YouTube, Our Fun Productions. On Instagram, it is uh, America's Movie Cop. On TikTok, it is Our Fun Productions. And on YouTube, I'm sorry, on Snapchat, which I'm still figuring out. <laughs> and we yeah, won't even have some Snapchat. I'm still figuring that one out. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it's it's gotten a – it's pretty overwhelming. I, in fact, I don't I don't even – I'm not all that spread out on all the different social medias. But, well, uh, that is, that is and, the future. It is not moving. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it, obviously, there are lots of options for our listeners to be able to find out what you got going on and what you're doing. So that's, uh, that's good. And I appreciate you sharing that with us, John. Look, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. I, I hope you have as well. Oh yeah. I, I think it, uh, you've got a fascinating story and you did a great job of choosing some really terrific film music that I know our listeners are going to enjoy. Uh, so again, keep, uh, keep in touch with John. I promise you, I think you'll find a lot of his content very entertaining and interesting. So I want to encourage you to do that. I want to thank our uh, patrons who are supporting the program on Patreon.com and want to encourage uh, you, if uh, you're so inclined and want to help support the program, to visit at the, uh, us at the Patreon.com slash What's the Score. We would appreciate your support on that. So uh, there's not much else left to say, I guess, really, other than the fact that, uh, again, I appreciate you listening. Yes, sir. Thank our guest, John, again. And uh, there's only thing one thing left to say, and that's simply this that my name's Frank Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.